thing that I failed to mention is uh, that if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we have those available on um, the back uh, wooden table. Kayla is holding one up right now. We've had a few people comment this morning. I can't leave this. It's too easy. Um, that Kayla is dressed like a librarian today, uh, which is so true and like so fitting because librarians are like this picture of service and like that's who Kayla is. And so, um, Kayla, we're grateful that you, uh, that you did that. Just for us today. That's what we're going to imagine that it's for, just for us. So, uh, But those are back there on the table if you would like uh, a copy of God's Word. That's yours. Take it with you. Um, engage it. Read it. Um, man, we love God's Word, and we want you to be able to have a copy for yourself. And so um, here we are. We're back in uh, 1 Timothy. And so if you've been here with us perhaps over the past few weeks, um, you may already know where that is in your Bible. If you are uh, new uh, here, or maybe you're new to the Bible, um, and you're not sure where to find uh, where we are going to be this morning, you can go to really the last like third of your Bible. Um, it's after Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, you'll see 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then you run smack dab into uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy is right after that. If you get to Titus or Philemon, you've gone too far, go back the other direction. So uh, we are in 1 Timothy. We are in week 4 of our time as we uh, seek to best understand what a gospel-driven church looks like from Paul's uh, first letter to Timothy, young pastor, um, in a fairly difficult context. That's one thing that we've tried to uh, review each week, right? Timothy is uh, pastoring a church in Ephesus that if we go all the way back to chapter 1 and seek to understand the context a little bit more, is experiencing some challenges as a result of uh, individuals proclaiming unsound doctrine. It's producing disunity within the church. A church that is not experiencing unity within the fellowship, that's a problem that needs to be addressed. Paul is addressing that by way of leaving Timothy there in Ephesus to uh, set things um, in their right order. He continues over the course of what we have read thus far and what we have yet to read to encourage Timothy and the church to pursue good health, right? To be a healthy church and to embrace and display confidence in the gospel and established Christ-exalting leadership. Last week, we saw how Paul laid out for us uh, the qualifications for the two offices set aside by God to lead and serve his church. Now, those um, two words are really important, to lead his church and to serve his church. Elders or pastors, overseers, as we see um, presented in chapter 3, and the office of Deacon. And we said this, we acknowledged this, that the, these individuals are gifts to a fellowship, right? Leadership, healthy leadership, Christ-exalting leadership, Christ-reliant leadership is a gift to a fellowship, to the church, as they, in the case of elders, lead the church, holding up and holding out God's word, articulating biblical doctrine and serving it faithfully to the world. Right? We talked a lot last week about what this, let's speak within the context of this local fellowship. All right? What ought be your expectation for me and any other pastor that would come in to serve this body? Well, it would be that they would uh, love the Lord, seek the Lord, right? That they would uh, hold up and, as we said, hold out uh, biblical sound doctrine, uh, that they would feed the fellowship, and that they would. Um, exhort the community uh, towards uh, faithful reliance on the finished work of Jesus for our salvation. We are a people in need of salvation. Uh, We live in a world that is in need of being saved, being rescued as a result of the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3 that we all have inherited. It is a part of our nature. And thus, right, the expectation for for pastors, overseers, uh, for elders is to hold up and hold out God's word. Right, to hold up and to hold out God's word, to train and teach the church in godliness, articulating sound biblical doctrine and serving it faithfully. We looked at the office of deacon and their role to stand as an example to the body of the Christian life. I love uh, the way that we spent some time last week um, distinguishing and perhaps dispelling certain false ideas about these particular offices, that somehow elder is like the big leagues, right? And deacon is more of like double A, triple A, right? And then like the rest of us are just playing little league, trying to put the ball in play and around the bases the right way, right? Like that's kind of maybe the way that we think about it, but that's not what it is 
at all. In fact, we are, as God's people, equipped by God's Spirit to engage in God's mission here in this world. And that God gifts individuals to serve in some specific ways, his body, his church, right? And that deacons, as we narrow in on that particular office, reviewing our time together last week, are not those who we say, okay, you clearly have this particular gift, and so let's set you aside, and the rest of you guys, you kind of figure it out, right? But it's more, hey, these individuals serve as an example to the fellowship of what living the Christian life looks like. Does that make sense? What is a deacon? I mean, a deacon is a, is a light. It's a model for the fellowship of what living the Christian life looks like. It's not to say that what a deacon does that that the rest of the fellowship is excluded from, but we are to observe them and and follow them as they follow Christ, their example, his example, as we seek to live out the Christian life in this world. And so that's where we were last week. And we saw in all of this that aspiring towards these particular roles is a noble task and requires reliance on God and grace for this work. This week, what are we going to be observing? Well, here's our, here's our big idea from 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've already read it, and so what we're going to do in just a moment is go back and really just step by step walk through this passage and make a few observations as we go. But, but the overarching theme, 30,000 feet, imagine we're loading an airplane, right? And this is like once we reach our cruising altitude, here we are, we look down and we're going to be able to see a lot of other things below us, but this is our 30,000 feet. Right? This is our cruising altitude. God's word distinguishes lies from truth. We're going to see that here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Directing our hearts towards worship, godliness, and sound teaching. There are three things, right, that we mentioned there. Worship, godliness, and sound teaching. We're going to see each one of those articulated um, from Paul to Timothy and to you and I as we engage in 1 Timothy chapter 4 today. Three points, three observations that we want to work towards a deeper understanding of. Uh, in our time together. First, we're going to observe a lie, right? A lie on the backdrop of certainty as a result of what the Spirit of God has said, right? So there's a lie, and there's also this certainty that what is observable by way of this lie and its consequences will play themselves out um, in our world. And so for you and I, as we observe that, we can go, okay, this ought to be our expectation of what the world looks like, right? Where we're not being set up to be disappointed when we observe what Paul is going to unpack here in these first three verses. Then we see him present the truth. And so there's a contrast here in the very beginning. A lie, right? The lie. And then the truth. We're going to look at that. And then finally, in verses 6 through 16, we're going to observe the response. I love, I love this. I love this passage because the way that we are as God's people to respond is articulated super clearly, right? There's almost this list of commands and exhortations that we can observe and we can go, okay, let me make note of this. All right, here, here we go. Okay, yes, do that. All right, what's next? Okay, yep, there it is. Do that, right? It's the way that we're to live, the gospel-driven church, the gospel gospel-driven life, right? That is what we are to do and be about. And we really receive some healthy, helpful instruction uh, from Paul um, to Timothy. And you and I are benefiting from that this morning. And so let's go to verse 1. As we begin understanding this this lie and this issue that is uh, undoubtedly to arise here at the church in Ephesus, at the churches in Ephesus, and in our own context here today. Look with me at verse 1. Paul writes, now the Spirit expressly says, all right, now what does that mean? Clearly says, the the Spirit clearly says, it's clear this is not up for debate, this is not uh, to be dialogued so much about other than like the clear uh, existence of this problem that is to come about. It's not a question of of if, but it's a question of when and perhaps even how, although he's going to address that in just a moment. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. They'll depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, I want us to think for just a moment about what this is articulating. It looks as though there is a, a very real spiritual element to certain unsound teachings and their goals in this world and in the church. Right? That there are individuals, based on what we see, that the Spirit expressly says, 
who will depart from the faith and in doing so will devote themselves to deceitful spirit and the teaching of demons. Evil teaching. Right? There is a such thing as evil teaching. Right? Unsound, unbiblical teaching that only serves to, perhaps if we consider it within the context of 1 Timothy, create division. Right? If we go back to chapter 1, we clearly see that there is a divisiveness within the church. There are individuals who are, who are giving themselves over to speculative issues, and they're beginning to teach that within the fellowship, and that's beginning to trickle down. It's having its effect. We've got these women who are now teaching unsound things in a position that they are not to be operating in based on what we saw from Paul to Timothy last week, right? And so this is, a, this is an issue, and it is a, a dark issue. Right? We've got seared consciousness and we've got unsound teaching. So what is some of this teaching? Now again, there is a sense in which we can say perhaps this is exactly what we see going on in Ephesus. But there's also a sense in which we can say that, there, that perhaps this is a, a, a looking forward, a looking ahead to certain perverse teaching that will be experienced not only in this day, but in this day. Right? And so for God's people, there's an encouragement towards uh, the pursuit of, again, sound doctrine. Right? What has God said? What does God's word expressly say? Here's the issue going on in Ephesus, perhaps. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so it's interesting because the, the, the unsound teaching, the dangerous teaching that we see taking place within the context of 1 Timothy chapter 4 is not so much uh, directed towards those who say, hey, like eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. It's not that type of teaching. Right? But it's more of, hey, an abstinence from what God has made and given that is indeed good, especially for those who know him and are called according to his purpose. Right? We actually see two specific issues that are addressed. We see individuals who are forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence, right? and then this issue of food, perhaps even abstinence from food. So marriage and then abstinence from certain foods. This is the lie. This is the discouragement. An encouragement towards abstinence by discouraging marriage, right? And the participation of the eating of certain foods. Now, um, a number of us were at a wedding yesterday. Walt and Anna, you guys were married yesterday. You got married, and you're still married this morning. Hallelujah. Praise God, right? So we were at this wedding yesterday, and I'm up there because like, I, was, I was officiating, right? And they were there, obviously, right? Some of you were there. And we were able to participate in this beautiful institution of seeing God bring two individuals together in covenant relationship, and we said, right, we said this. You guys will remember, and for those of you who were there, you'll remember as well. But if you weren't there, here it is. What is God's goal in marriage? What well, is to display the covenant-keeping love of Christ for the church, right? It is to exalt Christ. We see that we are sanctified by way of the intimacy of these relationships, the marriage relationship that God brings together as he unites two sinners redeemed by grace in this most beautiful picture of what he is to accomplish one day, fully and finally, right? And so it's interesting that you have individuals who are discouraging this beautiful gospel picture, something that has been given by the Lord. We can go all the way back to the beginning and we can see the father, right, bringing Eve and presenting her to Adam. A bride being united with her husband. God does this. This is beautiful. This is indeed a beautiful thing. When you go to weddings, when you go to weddings, consider what you are observing by way of what God has given us and all that that means and says about who he is and what he is doing. It, it unpacks for us the character and the goodness, the nature of God. Right? And so you have individuals who are saying, no, like, Stiff arm marriage and pursue after abstinence. When actually we see from God's word that when individuals are brought together in this most specific union, all that they enjoy together is a gift from the Lord. Do we get this, right? Like they're discouraging the fellowship away from that which is intended to bring glory to Christ. 
This is a big issue. It continues on with this issue of food, things that God has created and given to us to enjoy, right? To, to enjoy, to enjoy certain tastes and textures and flavors. These are gifts from the Lord, right? Now, here's something that's super interesting in the context in which these individuals are, are practicing. And the issue that Paul is addressing is really, hey, this is going to lead you away from worship. Paul is saying, no, in fact, these can lead us into worship. Now, do we ever think about the way that we eat, right, food and and drink certain drink and enjoy fellowship and covenant union together of leading us into worship? Well, it ought to. It's intended to. That's what he says as we continue on down into the second half of verse 3 and on into verse 4. Look there with me. God created these foods, right, these institutions, these unions to be received with thanksgiving, By those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so I want us to think about this for just a moment. How as we participate in union, covenant union, and as we enjoy the things that are being discouraged in the first part of 1 Timothy chapter 4. How we can actually participate in these actions, in these acts. And they can lead us into a posture of worship and adoration for Christ, right? That we might worship Christ in light of what we experience that he has given us as uh, his people, as a people to enjoy and to reflect his good character. Go all the way back to the beginning. The creation narrative, we see that God creates and it is good. He creates and it is good. Good, good, good. Very good. We're able to go back and we can see that. Go check out Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Later on, and you'll, you'll be able to observe that. Here, right now, now creation has been impacted by the fall. That is most certainly true, right? We're able to, to look around us. We see certain natural catastrophic events that point towards like creation groaning, longing for the return of our king. We've got volcanoes blowing up all over the place, right? Like thunderstorms, tornadoes, earthquakes, natural disasters. All of these things point towards the fallenness of the curse that resides over the earth. Right? But at the same time, we see from Paul explicitly here that things are given, certain things are given to be enjoyed as they reflect the goodness and character of God. Here, they're saying, as a result of these things not being good, well, then God must not be good. Right? And Paul's saying, hold the phone. Right? Enjoying food and, and, and drink and enjoying unity, fellowship with one another in the covenant union of marriage as God has created it, designed it, and defined it is a good thing. That we can sit down and we can eat meals and we can literally, as we take, reflect on the goodness of our creator. Do we get that? Do we eat food that way? Do we oftentimes consider eating a meal as a worshipful experience? Did you know that it can be? And even in light of what we see here, that it should be for the believer? This is groundbreaking. This changes the way that we eat lunch. This is immediately applicable. For all of you going to Pita Pit this afternoon, man, enjoy your Pita in a worshipful experience. Because we can Right? Because God, God is redeeming, right? God is giving good gifts, and we, as we enjoy, are able to point back to the goodness, kindness of our Creator. The lie is that these are things that ought to be abstained from. The truth is that we ought to participate in these certain things, desiring greater intimacy, fellowship, and enjoyment of God. Does that make sense? Are we there? Are you guys good? Are we all right so far? Let's catch our breaths for just a moment. And move on to our second observation. Let's look together at verse 6. Because the idea only continues. In verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And so there's an encouragement from Paul to Timothy here. That as an individual who is aware of those truths who have been, uh, that have been explicitly laid out in verses 1 through 5. Your job is now to hold these things and the things that I'm going to say following before the brothers. Right? Like bring this out. Bring this before them. This is Good. They need to know this. This needs to be corrected. This is an an, an exposition of the character of God. It's an opportunity for us to be led into worship. And so let's make what is crooked straight, right? Straighten it out, 
right? Iron it out. Let's make these things clear. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. Now, this is really cool what we're going to talk about in just a minute. But he begins by discouraging him away from silliness. Don't be involved in, in silly behaviors. I spent the past, uh, the past three or four days working through 2 Timothy, which is actually where we're going to go when we finish our time in 1 Timothy. And so here's a bit of foreshadowing for us, right? Hang with us long enough and you'll get there. We actually see in 2 Timothy, this, yet again, this, this great encouragement to avoid irreverent babble. To avoid silliness, to not be uh, to not be drugged into silly things, but instead to focus on a faithful proclamation of that which is true. Right? Speak truth and avoid silliness. That's the word that I get. Reverent silly myths. Don't be a part of that. As opposed to being involved in silly myths, he says, train yourself for godliness. And so there's an encouragement to avoid certain practices and to train oneself in godliness. Now listen to the contrast that he lays out here in just a moment from uh, the pursuit of godliness, the training in, in the spiritual realm, and that which is physical. Listen to what he says. This is, inc- this is incredible. Verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, right, which we would agree, right, bodily training is certainly valuable. I know there are many runners in this room, right? Um, I recently, I, I love running. I don't run as often as I would like to, um, but I was convicted over my time in Chicago while talking to a few of the brothers there that like, I need to improve my like eating habits. Like I need to start eating better. Right. And so, uh, I came home and I told Courtney, like, listen, like I'm taking up keto, right? You guys know what this keto thing is? Like, um, it's like meat and eggs. I'm like, I can get on board with that. Like drink a lot of water. Okay, cool. Haley's shaking her head. I don't know why that's discouraging me from godliness, Haley. Okay, so, so I, I come home and I'm like, I'm gonna, really going to participate in this. I'm leaning into this. This is what I'm going to start. I'm going to start practicing because I understand it's valuable. I've got a wife. I've got a little boy. I've got a little girl on the way. Like I need to keep myself in tip-top shape, man, because like I'm going to have to like uh, like raise these, these wild children and like fight off like would-be suitors for my little girl, right? And so like I need to get right. I need to eat right. I need to be running. I need to get strong. These are things that I need to be focused on and about. Paul says, hey, this is wonderful. Right? This is this is this is good. Be a part of this. It's of some value. But then he says this. He said, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so he distinguishes between the temporal and the eternal, right? He, he distinguishes between that which is fading, which is of benefit for the next what? I'll give myself like uh, 70 years, right? I'll be really, I don't know, um, I might be like out of it if I go 70 years, but like I'll give myself that long, right? The physical things that I participate in now will be of some benefit then, but eventually they fade because I'm not going to be here forever, right? Like barring the return of our king, like I'm out of here, as are the rest of you, right? And so it's of some value, but there is this emphasis on training in and towards Godliness, right? The sanctification of our souls, the pursuit of holiness. We talked about it yesterday in Walt and Anna's wedding, the way that God accomplishes this by his grace, moving us, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, from one degree of glory to the next. That's what we're about, and that is what we are pursuing. That's what God's desire for his people is. Hey, physical training, bodily training, hey, that's awesome. You got us keto it up, run miles, lift weights, that sounds fantastic. But do not neglect the pursuit of godliness. It's of value in every way, as it holds promise both for the present life and also for the life to come. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said it like this, that if we, I'm going to paraphrase here, right? Um, So if we focus entirely on this life, if our aim is entirely on this life, the temporal, then when it's over, it's, it's, it's over, right? And that which is temporal has become king over that which is eternal. And there is judgment, right? And eternal separation from God as a result if we do not know him as king and redeemer, right? If we aim at the eternal and we focus on godliness and we pursue after holiness and we desire Christ-exalting lives and Christ-exalting existence, then we get eternity and this life in the deal, 
right? That there becomes this, this greater appreciation for what is temporal as a result of this eternal experience that waits before us that informs the way that we go about living life now. Does that make sense? You aim at the temporal, I mean, you will be let down. Right? You'll be let down. You'll be discouraged. It's of some value, but it's not of eternal value. Aim at eternity, and you get this life in the deal. C.S. Lewis, he is a very wise man, right? He says in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we strive. This is what we're toiling. We're striving in this because we have our hopes set on the living God. Man, it's, it's encouraging, right? Our God is alive. All over the globe this morning, there are two camps of people, right? There are, there's a camp of people who are worshiping the living God. You and I in this room are a part of that particular group. And then there is a camp of people that whether they find themselves in a particular establishment of worship are or not, are worshiping dead gods. It's encouraging as we read through 1 Timothy chapter 4 that we worship a God who is alive. That's encouragement for the race before us as we strive and toil that our king is enthroned on high, right? And the spirit of God equips the people of God to engage with the mission of God. That's what it is. That's where we are. That's what we're about. We reflect on that, and then we pursue after all that Paul is encouraging Timothy, the church at Ephesus, and you and I and all of God's people towards this morning. He continues on. Who is living God? Who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. The savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, that can be a bit confusing, right? Because it seems to set us on a certain trajectory that lands us in most certain universalistic tendencies, right? This belief that all people will indeed be saved. But the best way that we can understand who uh, the savior of all people is the preserver of all people, especially those who believe that we are preserved, right? That there are a camp, there is a camp of people following after Christ, laying ourselves upon his finished work at the cross for our rescue, him taking our punishment that we might receive his reward as we receive this gift of faith and repent of our sins, believing in him and living in light of all that he has done and all that he has said. There's one group, and then there's this other group. This group uh, that is being preserved, that's being given the gift of, of uh, what we might call um, common grace, right? Common grace, that we are all recipients of God's grace to a certain degree. God's people in this room can all sing, your breath in our lungs. We acknowledge that it is God's breath, that it is a gift that is in us, that is given to us, that brings us spiritual life and nourishes our physical life. It all belongs to him. Right? It's not ours, right? But it's all His. And it's all grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. If you're in this room and you're a skeptic, right? You haven't fully bought into this whole like being a Christian thing yet. Like you have the same breath in your lungs that those in this room who have been following Christ for 30 years have, right? Does that make sense? God is good. And he gives grace. There is common grace and there is salvific grace that he extends to a people. Now, I want us to talk for just a moment about how beautiful this truth is, especially in light of, of our understanding of the eternal and focusing on eternity and then living in the temporal. And how when we live with this eternal perspective and we understand that God is living and saving, right, preserving and giving grace, how that changes the way that we look at the world, okay? Let, let me say it like this, right? You, if, you have, if you're here, you're not a Christian, right, or you know unbelievers, right, and they're, they're breathing air, they are certainly appreciative for that, but given that there is a, a limited perspective, the appreciation that they have for it cannot be as great as the appreciation that we have for it, because we know where it comes from. Now, this manifests itself in some other ways, too, and here's what I'm getting towards. This leads us to worship. Okay, understanding this, that where goodness and grace and good things, food, drink, marriage comes from, leads us to appreciate those things to a greater degree. You've perhaps been to many weddings before. Maybe you've been to weddings before where there wasn't so much this um, religious aspect to it. There, there wasn't this focus. There wasn't this emphasis on Christ because those who were being united together were not Christians. 
Well, have you ever been to a wedding where there is? Right? I, I was yesterday. I was able to, to stand there, and I'm officiating Walt and Anna's wedding. They showed up this morning, and you get, so you guys are naturally a sermon illustration in, like, every area. So just hold on. We've got some more coming, right? But, like, I'm reading, and we're talking about the goodness and the grace of our king and that which he has given us that we're enjoying watch be brought together right now in this moment. And both Walt and Anna are just, like, on the verge of tears, Right? Why? Well, because we understand where this comes from. Right? We understand where it comes from. Now, this plays itself out in some other ways, too. Um, a few of you, I don't know how many of you engage with social media throughout the week, but I put up a bit of a teaser uh, about where we're going to be going next. So here's what happened. I was sitting outside earlier this week, and I was, I was working on this. And I was working on some things for Chicago. There were a lot of balls in the air this past week, right? And so I'm sitting there working, and uh, I'm outside at the coffee shop because, of course, right? And then while I'm there, a friend of mine who also works in the coffee shop like every day comes out, and we begin having this, this dialogue. And he starts talking about, no, it was me. It was me talking about something that I just watched. What was it? Hang on, let me think back. I was sitting there. Oh, it was this. I was sitting there, and I watched uh, a car drive by. But they, they turned out of the square in a way to where they got in front of a roadblock. Like half of the square, you could only go one way to the square, and half of it was blocked off. And so they, they actually bypassed it, and they turned, and they very quickly realized, I'm not supposed to be going this way. And there was nowhere to turn around. And so they just put their car in reverse. And, like, I was sitting there. And so I watched them drive this way. And the building was obstructing the rest of my view. And then I watched them drive backwards <laughs> this way. And, like, they weren't endangering anyone. And so it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, right? Like, which would not be a funny story at all or appropriate to tell this morning. But because they were just going back, I was like, man. That is awesome. That's the kind of stuff that I eat up, right? And I can enjoy that in a unique way because I know that there is a God who is alive, who extends grace and goodness and kindness, and there are specific instances that we observe that in our lives throughout our days and weeks and years, and we go, man, that's beautiful. God is good, and he loves me. And this is an example of that. I'll give you another example uh, of this. Hey, can we put this picture up? This is incredible. Some of you guys might not be able to see what this is. Um, it's been through like seven Instagram filters over the years, and so the picture quality is really poor. Uh, but this was actually taken like, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. Uh, and if you can't tell what it is, um, I'll, I'll get there in just a moment. I was with uh, our external elder, the external elder of this church, uh, Neil Aubrey, uh, picking up his son from preschool at Miss Marnie's at the Methodist Church right off the square. Raise your hand if you know where this is. You're familiar with this. All right, like three of you. The rest of you, when you need a preschool, you'll become more familiar, right? So I'm sitting there, and Neil goes inside to get his son, and I'm just like there on my phone, obviously, because I was able to get this picture. And out of nowhere, it's a one-way street, so I don't have to really watch behind me unless this white car that drove the wrong way through the square is coming, in which case I do, right? But I'm sitting there, I'm on my phone, and I look up, and I see this motorcycle coming toward me. And on the motorcycle is... It's a guy or a girl, I don't know, because they're dressed as Gumby. Okay, so they've got, a, like, head to toe, a Gumby costume on, riding this, like, old vintage, like, Honda motorcycle. And I was, I got this picture, and it was, it's, to this day, like, I can look and I can go, okay, over the course of my life, things that have happened that, that prove that God is indeed good and that he loves me. Okay, he blessed me and he saved me, right? He, he gave me a wife who is like way out of my league and I'm incredibly grateful for. He's blessed me with amazing friends and, and family um, and, and opportunities. And he brought Gumby by on a motorcycle. And not only did he bring Gumby by on a motorcycle, but like had this happened like... 30 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to capture it. But now it's captured forever because we live in a digital age. And praise God, right? Here's what I'm saying. God, God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And so knowing that, knowing that this is who God is, and this is what God does, I'm able to, and you're able to, Observe things that happen around you. And you're able to connect that to the eternal realm. Because you recognize that it's a gift from the eternal God. 
right? Who, who not only gives us things like this, but rescues us and then brings this increased value and enjoyment to everything, right? Do we get that? I know that this is your example. I can give you another one that came up this morning, okay? Mac was banging away on this drum, right? Um, which he does a great job at. Thanks, Mac, for doing this every week, man. Uh, and before, uh, before church this morning, my son was obviously on stage because inside, and I don't know if you saw this or not, I'm going to move him to the front, are like these pieces of chalk, right? Like he filled the hole with these little pieces of chalk. Now that might seem silly, right? Like to many of you and for some of you in this room, hey, you're like, that, I don't care. Like that's really kind of stupid and I don't understand why you enjoy that at all. But here's what I'll say is that that's the way that God works, right? That I can sit here on the front row and I can, I can look and I'm singing and like my, I'm just singing. And then I open my eyes and like I see this chalk in that hole. And I'm like, yeah, like of course, like you, you love us and you save us and everything that we experience now in this life is of, of added like joy and, and, and benefit, right? Even difficulty that we experience in our lives, right? Like how does that, how do we enjoy, you enjoy difficulty? Well, we can, right? We can, as God's people, enjoy seasons of difficulty and, and trial and temptation and confusion. Why? Well, because we understand that God is accomplishing this work, right? He's accomplishing this work by way of experience that progresses us from one degree of glory to a next. And that's our confidence. That was the charge to, to Walton and Anna yesterday, right? This is what God is doing. And so every opportunity to extend grace is a gift of grace. Why? Well, because you are being progressed. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. And so we, look, we can look at difficulty with joy because we understand its purpose. We understand that it has a purpose. And that purpose is good, right? And so listen to what Paul says here. It's just incredible. For to this end we toil and strive, verse 10, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior, the preserver of all people, especially those who believe. That's the truth. Right? We can enjoy certain tastes and textures and relationships and fellowships and scenes and music and movies. And the list goes on and on. You can make a list of ten other things. Right? Like, I don't need to lay them all out. They're endless. Because, for, again, half of you don't care that the chalk's in there. Right? But, but that matters to me. Like, that's, that's valuable to me. Right? Because, because my son put that in there. Right? And he's a gift, and that's a gift, because I think that that stuff is hilarious. <laughs> and God loves us, and that's a great example of that. He continues on in verse 11. We, we transition from the lie to, this, to the truth to then now the response. Listen to all the ways, right? Correct these things. Communicate clearly the character of God. Worship God. That's been the exhortation. Love God. Worship God. Here we go. Here's the response. Verse 11. Command and teach these things, right? Command and teach these things. Lay these things out. Uh, prod at times, like the fellowship towards this, this joy in Christ, this resting in the character of God, this observance of his goodness and worship in and to his name. Let no one despise you because you're young, because of your youth, but, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, with faith and purity. Right? Live, live it out. Right? That's the exhortation. That's the response. In light of the things that, that, that Paul has to say to Timothy here, he encourages him to live these things out before the fellowship, displaying clearly what this looks like. Love, faith, and purity. And then, verse 13, he lays out this incredible like, way in which God's people are able to participate in this work. Listen to what he says, and we did it in the beginning. That's one reason that we, we changed up our order a little bit this week. What does he say? He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. 
Right? Devote yourself to these things. These things are important and they are valuable. And this is a means by which I accomplish this great work in you and through you. And so devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. What does that look like? Well, we're participating in it this morning. Right? This is why the gathering of the saints is of such benefit. This is why we encourage involvement in discipleship avenues outside of the Sunday morning gathering. Because we need to gather around and fellowship around the gospel of Jesus. We need that. We need to be gathered around the proclaimed word of God. Because with believer and unbeliever, because it encourages the heart of the believer. And it brings faith by the work of the Spirit to the unbeliever. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of the Lord, right? And so commit yourselves, Paul says, to the public reading of Scripture. Exhortation. We commit ourselves to exhorting one another on towards godliness. Now, exhortation is at times challenging. Amen? Right? It's difficult. Right? There are times and seasons of exhortation that actually produce anger within us. Right? I remember uh, being a, a college student, um, and I was a relatively new believer, and I had a, a very good friend of mine who was also a relatively new believer. We got, we got to gospel one another a lot uh, because we lived together, and we also like collided heads sometimes, which is of no like, importance to this illustration. But he came to me one time, and he said, hey, listen, man, like, um, like your attitude really stinks, right? Like your attitude is just really poor. Like I'm not sure what's going on with you. And like it brought me to the point of like just like near tears because there was this recognition uh, by way of this exhortation towards godliness, right? That brought conviction and a degree of, of uh, frustration and question and even anger. But it was of great benefit to me, right? Exhortation, right? We're lifting, lifting weights, hey, Three more reps, right? Three more reps. Two more reps. Hey, keep running. Hey, keep, keep running. Keep striving. One foot in front of the other. Persevere, right? That's challenging. Exhortation is challenging. And so there's this bigger goal, again, that we're being, we're being drawn into. That it's not ultimately our comfort. It's not ultimately our happiness, but it's ultimately our holiness that God desires. And in the midst of of encouraging us towards that, what we find is that this avenue towards holiness actually becomes great happiness. Isn't that incredible how that happens? Consider how that happens in your own life as we progress through the remainder of this passion, this passage. Hey, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. To exhortation, to teaching. Don't neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you, simply affirming the gift that you have. It wasn't as though we were watching a Marvel film play out here and there was this like transmission of power from one to another. Eh, Like here it is, right? But it's more, we're affirming this gift that the Lord has given you, right? That he will enable you to participate in the work of ministry and all that Uh, All that the Christian life entails. Verse 15. Practice these things. Practice them. Immerse yourself in them. What does that mean? What does it mean to immerse yourself in them? It means to be be covered by them. Right? Think about the the image of a baptism. Right? What do we do? We we immerse. Right? We, We send one down into and then bring them out of. We have been, by grace, immersed. Right into the death, burial, and resurrection of our King. We are now spiritually alive. And now there is this encouragement. Immersion is not over. Right? Immersion is not over. But now immerse yourself in these things is Paul's encouragement to Timothy. So that all may see your progress, your progression, this transformation. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The exhortation is clear. Immerse yourself in these practices. We consider Christ and how the gospel informs the reading of this passage. Let us consider just a few things. Christ Jesus has kept to and placed these things before sinners. That is the encouragement for Timothy from Paul as he lives the Christian life and pastors this church. Keep these things before the people. Christ does that. He accomplishes that fully and beautifully. He has kept watch on himself, presenting himself, Christ Jesus, before the Father, on the cross, 
blameless, sinless, as a sacrifice, embracing the curse in order that we might indeed be set free before coming back to life three days later so that we could receive his reward. Some will depart. That is what is emphasized clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Some will depart. Some will move on. Some will flee. Some will fall away. But God assures us in his word that Jesus holds those who are his. And so the encouragement is to watch, to immerse, to be aware, to pursue godliness, to worship him, right? And to be confident that come what may, that as we find ourselves in the hand of our king, that we are never to be snatched up, that we are never to be lost, that we don't fall through his fingers like sand on the beach, but he holds us. And he keeps us. And that is of great encouragement considering the difficulty that is to result in light of those leaving, falling away, teaching unsound things. There's this encouragement that Christ keeps us. The silly things of this world. The resurrection says this. The resurrection says that that which Jesus has accomplished upon the cross for our forgiveness is suitable to bring about salvation. Right? That we can know fellowship with God and we can know a deeper fellowship with one another. That we can know rescue from wrath and entrance into the kingdom because of what Jesus has done on the cross. The resurrection is evidence of this. The resurrection is also evidence of this. That all the silly things of this world will one day be erased. Right? All the silly things that Paul encourages Timothy to avoid and to flee from and one Timothy chapter four will one day be etch a sketch, right? They will be gone. They will be no more. And the world that we talked about in the beginning, that is uh, as a result of sin, broken and groaning and cursed and crying out, will be remade and we will reside with our king in a perfect creation, in a glorified state, to worship him forever and ever. And that is good news. The, the resurrection assures this for God's people. And so as we come into this place this morning, and as we come in here next week, and the week after, and the week after that, we come in as a confident people because our God is alive, 1 Timothy chapter 4, right? He holds us. He, he secures us. He sustains us. He's committed to a work in us and through us, living mission, reliant on the Spirit, And that one day he is to return and everything that is sad in this world will be made ultimately untrue. That is good. And so what do we what do we do? How do we how do we respond to what we see here within this passage, knowing that that difficulty and hardship is before us as we turn the page? And I don't mean um, on to chapter 5, I mean from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy, we see that suffering is a very real thing for the life of the Christian, that we ought to expect suffering. And so as we come out of this section and we consider how we respond in light of what Paul has said to Timothy, we can go straight through the epistle and we can say this. Man, in the face of difficulty and suffering, look to the word of God for truth. What is true in a culture, that, in a world that almost wants to um, just eradicate this entire concept of, of truth? How do we know what is true? Then we go to, to God's preserved word. We go to God's perfect word where truth is presented. We hold to it. Expecting hardship, expecting suffering, and embracing our roles as servants of the new covenant. We put these things before, verse 6, the brothers. We flee silliness, and we pursue after godliness. I'm saying these things really fast. And so if you're taking notes, you're like, wait, I don't have it all. Pursue godliness, reliant, and Worshipful, Enjoy grace, verse 13. Embrace the public reading of the word that sanctifies us. And watch Christ. Watch Christ. Keep our eyes fixated on our king, which will result in a right watching of ourselves. There's this exhortation here in 1 Timothy 4 for Timothy to watch himself. Well, how do we watch ourselves? Well, we watch ourselves rightly as we watch Christ. And so let this fellowship, 
Let us individually embrace this call and this commitment, this ability that we now have because of who Christ is and what he has done by way of his death, burial, and resurrection. Fixate our eyes on him, enjoying him, worshiping him, finding finding great, great confidence in him as we look to his word to to draw out clearly for us that what, which is true. As we come to God's table today, I want us to consider what it looks like to live this out. right? To, to, to live this out, to, to experience this, to enjoy this. Let's consider ways that we've rejected this, that we've neglected this, and let's come back to the fold. right? Call out to Christ. right? Be, be forgiven. right? Be reconciled. And look to him for strength for the Christian life. This shakes us up. It ought to shake us up. Right? The, the Christian life, thus is the Christian life. Here it is. And so let's look to him joyfully, worshipfully, as we come to this time in which we come to the table and enjoy this intimate fellowship with him by way of the spirit that now resides within us and with one another. This is an intimate act, and we love this, and we invite all of God's people to come to the table. If you're redeemed, if you're regenerated, if you know Christ, if you are believing on the gospel for rescue, come to the table, and let us remember the broken body of Christ, the spilled blood of Christ. It's laid out on this table so that we might remember the return of Christ and this future day fixed in which we will enjoy fellowship with him around a table. Man, it's so beautiful. Let's pray.